Acts chapter 20 and 2 Timothy chapter 4. Folks, this is my final message. Did somebody say amen to that? Oh, no, this is my final message. For Remember what I told you not long ago that if I knew, I'm giving away part of the message already, but if I knew I'd never preach again. So this is that message. All right. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 26, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the elders at the church at Ephesus. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Second Timothy chapter 4, and beginning there in verse 6, for I am now ready to be offered the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. I will admit at the outstart this message is not quite like I wanted. I wanted to just stand up here and speak without notes. I have no confidence in the flesh. I have confidence in God, but I have no confidence in the flesh. And so I do have notes, and I'll try to refer to them a little bit this morning. I've presented this scenario before relating to us, but I'm going to ask this question again. If you were to see your neighbor's house on fire in the middle of the night, and they were inside asleep, how would you react? Would you just say, well, I don't want to wake people up and create a disturbance, so I'm just going to go ahead and go back to bed and forget about it? Or would you run to their door and bang on the door, even kick it in if necessary, and wake up the whole neighborhood, the house is on fire, the house is on fire, and try to get them out? Well, I think I know the folks here well enough to know that you would try to get them out. But folks, there's a fire that people are facing that's greater than any house fire any physical fire that man on this earth may face, and that is the fire of hell. I was moved to this message because of a statement I read. The English Puritan preacher Richard Baxter was plagued by poor health. And he was plagued by, as he stated, the frequent sight of death's most awful face. And he gripped the urgency of the gospel message. And the fleeting opportunity he had to proclaim it to the lost. And when he did that, he wrote this. Still thinking I had little time to live. My fervent heart to win men's souls did strive. I preached as never sure to preach again. As a dying man to dying men. That's why this is my final message. As a dying man to dying men. Let me tell you something, we preachers are subject to the same vices as anybody else. We like to be liked, (laughs) you know. Preachers enjoy being liked. And then sometimes, and around here we do because of your pastor, we joke a little bit about procrastination, don't we? One of these days I'm going to preach on procrastination. I haven't gotten around to it yet. But we have a natural tendency to overlook the present and the needs of the present and to put off until tomorrow what we should do today. 
Sometimes we think, well, as pastors, as preachers, sometimes, well, I, I'll speak for this preacher, not others. But sometimes there's a tendency to think, well, I'm going to wait till another time to preach this message. I'm going to wait till a more convenient season because there's something else I want to preach today. I tried my best to put this on the shelf. You know, I mentioned Wednesday night, if you pray and ask God to give you a message, He gives it to you and you don't preach it, that's pretty bad, isn't it? I'm afraid there might be some chastisement there if you didn't do that. But listen, we are not promised tomorrow. I can only preach today. I can only preach in this moment. So if this were my last chance to preach God's Word, would I preach differently than I have before? And I think the obvious answer should be yes. What if I preached as if my life depended on it? What if I preached as if immediately after this message, I were going to be called to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the message that I preached? I think there are a lot of preachers today that are preaching messages to satisfy people and they're not giving the thought to the fact that they're going to give answer. The Apostle Paul told young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, he reminded him that he's going to stand in judgment for his preaching. And he reminded him that Jesus is coming back. And so in light of the return of Christ and in light of the judgment seat of Christ, you know what Paul told Timothy? Preach the Word. Just preach the Word of God. What if I pleaded with lost people to be saved? What if I pleaded with God's people to faithfully serve Him? What if I spoke as a dying man to dying men? That's what I'm going to try to do this morning. You say, why should you even consider a thought like preaching as a dying man? Because I am. I'm a dying man, but guess what? You are dying people. Death is a part of life. From the moment we are born, guess what? We begin the road to death. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We are not guaranteed the next hour. And guess what? We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ for those of us who are saved. We're going to give answer for our lives. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. We're familiar with it. I've quoted it a lot. Brother Truman's quoted it a lot. Probably every preacher you've heard has quoted it. And it says what? As it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this what? The judgment. We will die. And after our death, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If you're a child of God, James chapter 4 verse 14, Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? For it is a vapor, even a vapor, that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. You could have walked out this morning, I suppose. It was quite cool this morning. You could have walked outside and gone, and you would see this little fog of breath hang there in the air for a moment, and then what? It's gone. That's our lives, folks. It just hangs there for a second. 
Where do you think James got the idea, by the way, to say what he said? Well, obviously by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but listen to Proverbs 27.1. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. Amen. Don't we say this a lot? Well, tomorrow I'm going to do this, and, and next week I'm going to do this, and this time of year, because football season is ending, teams will say, well, next year, right? And then they even promise that they have tomorrow. Next year? Next month? No, we have today. We have right now. And not only is death certain, it is unpredictable as to when it will occur. We probably all know of people who had great plans for the future. A man that I worked with one time. He was retiring from the position he was in and he had all kinds of plans. He had set up his retirement. He was ready to go and within about a year or two he was dead. He developed pancreatic cancer, I believe it was, and he died. And all of his plans for the future just suddenly ended. And we probably, as I said, have all known people like that. First Samuel chapter 20 verse 3. What did David say? He said, there's but a step between me and death. I cannot guarantee you that I can step from here to here and still be alive. Brother Truman and I both have the same desire. We want to die in the pulpit. We want to die preaching God's word. Just have, that, you know, I, I want to finish the message first, brother. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be a great invitation just as you invite people to come step out here and have a massive coronary and just drop? I, you might get people to fill the altar that way. Some of them might be EMTs, but you'd get people to fill the altar. But a step between me and death, David said. Listen to what Job said in Job chapter 7, verse 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. And you know what? Younger people, listen to this. The older you get, the swifter they are. I get to thinking about, well, at my age, maybe I have 10, hopefully more than that, years. But do you know how quickly 10 years have gone by? This year, 2023, I celebrated 10 years as pastor of this church. And it seems like it was only yesterday that the church had called me as pastor. 10 years just goes by like that. And so if I have 10, if I have 20, it's just going to be a couple of snaps and it's over. In verse 7, Job said, Oh, remember that my life is wind. And then he said about his life in verse 6, His days were spent without hope. And mine eyes shall no more see good. He was sort of desperate at that point. He was quite ill. He didn't know really what was going on. There's a sense of desperation. Listen, there ought to be a sense of desperation about us in worshiping and serving God and in witnessing to the lost. Now even if some of God's people don't get it, the brevity of life and so forth, I debated whether to include this or not, but it's a song I love to listen to from the 1970s. And you know what I was doing in the 1970s, all right? But listen to these words. And it's, the song is called Dust in the Wind. I close my eyes only for a moment and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes. A curiosity, dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Have you ever watched Dust in the Wind? It's here and it's gone. They go on to say, all we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever. There is nothing in this world that is going to last into eternity. And you can't take it with you. 
I have never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can send it on ahead, right? You can serve the Lord and lay up rewards in heaven and you can send it on ahead, but you can't take things. There's only one thing, and I've shared this with you before, there's only one thing that I can take from this earth to heaven with me. You know what that is? That's my children. That's my family. That is all. The house, the car, everything is going to be left behind. We are on the threshold of a new year, of another year. You know, I thought about that. Isn't it amazing how tonight, when that minute hand slipped from 11.59 to 12 midnight, suddenly we're in a new day? Suddenly we're in a new month? Suddenly we're in a new year? Just like that. Just that quickly it happens. And when that minute hand of our lives, folks, slips to that point and God calls us home, we're going to find all things new also. As we face the new year, there's some things we'll wonder. Will this be the year that God calls me home? You know, we've been very fortunate in this church. Over the 10 years I've been here, we've not had, we've not lost many people. Just recently we lost Brother Skipper and I, I hate that for us. I don't hate it for him. <laughs> you know, he's in the presence of the Lord. We've lost a few folks, but not that many. And we thank God for that. But would this be the year that God calls me home? Or you home? Will this be the year, and this is the best thing that could happen, will this be the year that Jesus returns? Now once again, that quote from Richard Baxter rings in my head as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. For that reason, I ask you to do what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.1, bear with me a little in my folly, okay? Just bear with me a little in my folly as I share this final message. I said, I, I put off preaching this message. I put off preparing this message for a while. I even tried again to talk myself out of preaching it today. But I think this is the time to share it. So, at this very moment, if I knew that this would be my final message, if I could know for certainty that I would never preach again, the first thing I would do is speak to those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. Folks, they're the ones that are in the greatest danger. If you're watching by live stream, or if you're here and you're not truly saved, you have no idea when the end of your life, when you're going to come to the end of the road in your life, and it will be all over. Please listen to me. If you don't know Christ the Savior, you are dangling on the edge of a Christless eternity. You die in that condition, your eternity is set. Now I know people don't want to consider themselves a quote bad sinner. Well I know some saved people that live worse than I do. People who say they're saved that live worse than I do. Well one of two things. Either they're not saved or they're saved and they're going to heaven but they sure are not living like it. They're sure not serving God if they live worse than those who don't know Christ as Savior. 
But listen to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. How many do good? In God's sight? Now I know as human beings, we like to say, even though they're lost. And we had some friends in one place. They were good people. They, the only problem was they didn't know Christ the Savior. But they were nice. They were friendly. They invited us to their house. And they were what we would call good people. But they were lost people. And needed to be saved. Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 13. Is a description of those who don't know Christ. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The entire being is corrupt with sin. That's what it's saying. Well I'm a good person. You may be by man's standard. But here's how God sees you. Romans 3.23, for all, how many? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You and I had to come, those of us who are saved, you and I had to come to that realization. I am a sinner. I heard a wonderful explanation, a wonderful illustration of repentance. You're driving down the interstate and you're going away from your destination that you want to go. You're driving down the interstate of life and you're going away from God. What do you have to do? You have to make a U-turn. And this preacher said, brokenness before God. And by the way, I don't think you'll truly repent without brokenness. Come to that realization, I'm a lost sinner. I'm going to hell. I deserve hell. And we're broken before God. We're broken by the word of God. And we say, I, I, I want to turn around. And God turns us and we repent. And we accept Jesus Christ as Savior. And then Romans chapter 5 verse 10 shows us the condition of those who don't know Christ the Savior because verse 10 says this, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Lost friend, you ever stop to think that you are an enemy to God? There is no neutrality. You know, I understand that there were certain countries during World War II that were neutral countries. Okay? But in this war that we're in, of good versus evil, of Satan versus God, there's no neutral position. Well, I'm, I haven't rejected Jesus, but I haven't accepted Him. Well, then you've rejected Him. I mean, it's just that simple. You, you can't say that I'm not going to take any position on this. All who reject Jesus remain in their lost condition and remain enemies to God and will suffer the consequences. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. Amen. Not just physical death. Death is separation. Sin separates from God. And the person who is without Christ. Who never accepts Christ. Who rejects Christ. Will remain separated from God for eternity. This death is not annihilation. 
Eternal separation. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Here it is. Who shall be, we're talking about lost people, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. And the idea is out and away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. If you reject Christ, I can guarantee you by the authority of the Word of God, that you will immediately open your eyes in torments. Now listen, in our world, in, in society as it is today, there would be people who would hear this and say, well, that's just cruel. That's just rude to tell people that. Well, I can either be hateful and not warn you, you know, like the neighbor whose house is on fire and I don't want to warn them, or I can be, in your opinion, rude and warn you that there's an eternity you're going to face. And if you face it without Christ, here's what awaits. In the 16th chapter of Luke, we're familiar with the rich man and Lazarus. The 16th chapter of Luke, verse 22, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. A convoy of angels met Lazarus when he died because he knew Christ as Savior. And I still think today when a saved person dies when a child of God dies that there's a convoy of angels to meet that child of God and take them into the presence of the Lord I know I have a guardian angel I believe in guardian angels I know I have one and I do my best to keep him busy I don't want him idle I don't want him sitting around saying hey you know you gotta take care of me right but I think a convoy of angels will usher us and then it says look at this the rich man also died that's all it says the rich man died and was buried and in hell. He lifted up his eyes being in torments. I'm sure, based on some things I understand about that day, this man was wealthy. And I'm sure he had paid mourners. And he had a big elaborate funeral. And it just looked so good. But none of that made any difference because at the moment he died... There's a sermon I listened to the other day called Five Seconds After Death. One second after death, a lost person will open their eyes in torments. Verse 24, And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Then he says in verse 28, I have five brethren that he, may, he wants God to send Lazarus Back to earth to testify to his five brothers. I still say that lost people in hell are some of the most mission-minded, evangelistic people there are. Amen. They want lost people to be saved. But he says, I have five brethren, send Lazarus that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Torment, torment, torment. You die without Christ, it's torment. Now, for some folks, the pride gets in the way. You know what? Some believe they're too good to need a Savior. And then some want to believe they're so bad, God can't save them. 
The Apostle Paul, talking about his salvation, said that he was the chief of sinners. So the very worst sinner, the chief of sinners, has been saved. You can't be worse than Paul was. That's what I understand from the scripture. And you can be saved if you'll repent toward God and put your faith in Christ. But some measure themselves by earthly standards. And they don't measure themselves by God's standard. What is God's standard of righteousness? Jesus Christ. Hey, listen. Are you as good as Jesus? Well, no, preacher. Nobody can be as good as Jesus. Well, if you're not as good as Jesus and if you're not saved, you need to be saved, okay? So God will see Christ's righteousness and not your unrighteousness. And I'm going to speak to another group. I don't know whether I should put a disclaimer on this to begin with or not. I don't think I'm going to. I may or may not be talking to someone here. But I have seen it happen. Some become church members. Lost people. What is it required to become a member of this church? Well, you walk down this aisle, you say, I'm saved. You give a fairly decent account of salvation. Man, we'll baptize you and make you a member. And people can do that without knowing Christ as Savior. And so some become church members thinking that's going to save them. Then they realize they're not truly saved. And you know what? They never take care of the problem after that. Now I've heard of instances, I've known of churches, I could name the church, where the preacher was preaching to lost church members and folks got angry. And some folks will do that. If the pastor starts preaching about salvation and you're a lost church member, it's going to get under your skin after a while, isn't it? Well, you're just preaching that to me, preacher. And in fact, they ran that preacher off. But he's preaching about your need of salvation. And there's unsaved church members hearing it. And, and they get angry. Or something they, else they may do. They may just start going from church to church to church. For trying to find one where the preacher doesn't preach that hard about salvation. Or they may just quit altogether. I love my wife. I'm not trying to embarrass her. But one night I was preaching. A, I actually preached a youth led revival one time. Or I, had, I was one of the preachers in it, okay? I didn't preach the whole thing myself. And I almost was a youth. And she was my wife. And I thought I married a saved girl. We gave the invitation and she walks the aisle and then the pastor says, Joni's been saved. Listen, folks. Lost people can get into the Lord's churches. If you're a member of this church and you don't know Christ as Savior, this church is not going to get you to heaven. Baptism at the hands of this church or any other church is not going to get you to heaven. Amen. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it takes to be saved. And don't get mad at the preacher just because he cares about your soul. The very first church. I've pointed this out a lot of times. The very first church had a perfect pastor. You don't have a perfect pastor. Amen. Thank you, deacon. <laughs> I appreciate that. I mean, it's true. But the first church had a perfect pastor and had at least one lost church member, didn't it? His name was Judas Iscariot. You know, I sort of wonder about that because John the Baptist would say, show me fruit that's meat for repentance. Give evidence that you're saved and I'll baptize you. So at some point, apparently Judas had to go to John because before Jesus, he was the authority for baptism on the earth and John baptized Judas. Judas was able to fool John. Don't be surprised if you're able to fool the preacher. 
Because Jesus said of Judas, have I not called twelve of you and one of you is a demon or a devil. Talking about Judas and his lost condition. Listen, if I were not certain, if I did not have that, that confidence that God through the Holy Spirit gives us when we're saved, if I were not sure that I was saved, I'd be reading First John every day. And I'd be praying, Lord, either convict me that I need to be saved or convince me that I am saved because eternity is too long and hell is too hot to go through life thinking you're saved when you're not. A mere profession, and I shared this on Facebook not many days ago, a mere profession of salvation can get your name on a church roll, but it will not get your name recorded in the Lamb's book of life. A mere profession. Being immersed in water, baptism, it'll get you wet, but it won't get you saved. It's not your profession of salvation that will get you into heaven. It's your possession of salvation that will get you into heaven. So the very first thing I would do if I knew I will never get to preach again, I would pour out my heart to people who don't know Christ as Savior. Please accept Christ today. Amen. And then next I'd speak to folks who are saved. And first I would speak to folks who are saved who are not faithful. Do you realize that your lack of faithfulness to God is of great concern to Him? I don't know if people think about that. That it bothers God when His children are unfaithful. Now listen, as a father, it would really bother me if my children just never came to see me, never spoke to me, never visited with me, never wanted to be around me. It would bother me as a human father. How much more do you think it bothers a holy and righteous God when His children, people who have accepted His mercy and His grace and who have applied the sacrifice of His Son to their souls that they might be saved and then they want nothing to do with Him or the rest of His people, their brothers and sisters in Christ. It may not bother you, but it's hurting the name and the cause of Christ, and it's hurting the church of your membership. The world tends to judge all Christians by the acts of a few unfaithful believers. You realize that? They won't look at the person who's faithfully serving God and say, well, all Christians must be like them. No, they'll look at the one who's living like the world and doing disgusting things of the world and say, yeah, I knew it was all a phony I knew it was all an act. And that's the way they all are. I said Wednesday night when, and I don't mind naming them, when Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart got in trouble, I didn't rejoice. You know why? Because all preachers are like that. That's what the world will say. They're just all like that. We're not all like that, by the way. When a believer or a merely professed believer lets the old nature show, it hurts all believers and by the way unfaithfulness damages and for lack of a better word I've used this word unfaithfulness damages the momentum of the church what do you mean by momentum we can be going along we're having good attendance good services and all of a sudden you know 10 or 12 people and I've encountered this in pastoring 10 or 12 people just decide for a few weeks we're not going to show up 
And it's just like you put a big old stop sign up there. And all that we had going in that direction, suddenly other people just say, well, you know, if they can do it, we can too. And, and it kills the momentum of the church. And here's something else. Children learn faithfulness or unfaithfulness from their parents. Then we don't think about that. If worshiping and serving God's not important to you, even in their young lives, and that's when they're really formulating their lives, they're likely to be unfaithful children, unfaithful church members, if they are ever saved at all, when they grow up. Sadly, many parents wait until the child is older. One preacher said, 16 years and 150 pounds too late. Wait till that child is over to start concerning themselves with faithfulness. And then later in life, they try to undo all of the unfaithfulness they have taught their children. Oh, you need to be in church. You need to be faithful to God. And here's what's sadder still. There are parents that are going to heaven. But they have not brought their children up under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those children are lost They've had time to watch mom and dad in their unfaithfulness to God. And they've heard them talk about and, and demean church members. They've heard them talk about and demean the pastor. And they have their hearts hardened toward God, toward the Word of God, toward the church, and they reject Jesus Christ. And mom and dad die and go to heaven, and their children die and go to hell. That's sad. What did the rich man want? In Luke 16, I've got five brothers. I don't want them to come here. But you didn't do anything in life to lead them toward God. And now you've died and gone to hell. And now your brothers are headed there also. That's to the unfaithful. Now to the, all of the saved... Folks, every child of God ought to live like dying men living before dying men. We don't think about it. We go about our everyday lives, don't we? Well, I just live from day to day, you know. Did you ever just stop and think sometimes, other than sharing the gospel, other than living for the Lord, other than worshiping and glorifying God, what's the point of life? I mean, if, there were, if that's all it is, you're born, you live and you die, and once you're dead, you're dead all over. Just like Rover, you know. If that's all it is, what's the point of it? But we know that that's not all there is. We know there's a God to serve and, and there's a life to live for Him. Every child of God ought to live like dying men living before dying men. We not to live to ourselves and we don't live to ourselves. Our lives affect other people. Do you realize that your life affects your pastor? Because I care about you. And I care about this church. You realize that our faithfulness or unfaithful affects our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and the pastor as well. We're going to have an effect on other people. And 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards. And I like to point that out. You know, God didn't say it's requested of stewards. Request means, eh, if you want to. But when it's a requirement. 
I said Wednesday night we're going to talk about the qualifications for a pastor. These things are required. It is required in stewards that a man be found what? Faithful. That's not my requirement. That's not this church's requirement. Although we do have some requirements in our bylaws for folks who hold positions and offices in this church. But that's God's requirement. It's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And our children need to see and learn faithfulness from their parents. If the pastor or the deacon or the Sunday school teacher is held up as a model of faithfulness, but the parents don't show it, what's that child going to think? Well, I don't want to be in one of those positions because I'll have to be there every Sunday. I just want to be, you know, have my name on the church roll. They're going to think that only certain people are required to be faithful by God. But we're all stewards. And they need to see faithfulness to God. They need to see mom and dad worshiping God, putting God at the center of their life. Not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. I'm so glad I grew up with the dead. We grew up with the dead. We actually ate breakfast then. You know, families, I don't guess, eat breakfast anymore today. Grab a Pop-Tart as you go out the door and a cup of coffee or you get a donut somewhere. We'd finish breakfast and dad would take his Bible out and read some scripture and have a few words to say. I'm so thankful for that. We were taught faithfulness. Two boys, one of them sick, one parent stays home with a sick one, the other takes the one that's not sick and goes to church. We didn't say, oh boy, family vacation, somebody's sick, we all get to stay home. No. If you weren't sick, you went to church. Did I always like that as a child? Well, no, I was a child. I was an ignorant child, okay? You can say amen to that too. But I was learning something. I never will forget, there was a, some TV show that came on on Sunday night. And I made the comment, which was one of my friends at school talked about it, and I made the comment that so-and-so sure is lucky because he gets, doesn't go to church on Sunday night and watches this show. And our mother right quickly said, he's not lucky. And again was taught that, you know, you need to be in church. So, boy, your parents were rude, weren't they? No, they were loving. No, they were godly, okay? And the best way to encourage faithfulness in your child is to teach that child faithfulness while they're young. And keep on teaching them as they grow. So I would speak to save people. And encourage faithfulness on the part of God's people. And there's one more group I'd speak to. And it involves saved people. I would speak to the Lord's church where I am. I personally believe that one of the main problems in churches today is not so much as of ice cold members in the pew. As it is pulpits where the fire has gone out. Preachers who just are going through the motions. Yes, we have church members that go through the motions, but folks, we have preachers that go through the motions. And I may have well been guilty. I remember, I went through a period, I think, of burnout. We used to record Sunday morning messages just like we do now, every Sunday morning, because we had a radio program record these Sunday messages. I can go back, because I have all of those messages on my computer, the recordings. And I can go back and listen to those, and I can tell you right there is where it began. I knew it. 
because it was sort of like this. Come in on Sunday night and just toss your Bible over on the desk or on the table and say, well, I've got to have two more for next week. A preacher gets in that shape. He needs to resign, resign or resign, okay? He needs to just quit or he needs to resign with God or he needs to resign himself to the condition that he's in and then do something about it, okay? I was listening to, actually it was a video that Brother Rick put on. It's one preacher rebuking other preachers. And he said this, and I like this. You don't have preachers in America. All you've got is teachers. To teach is to inform, to preach is to move. And then he points out that God's word presents itself, number one, as a hammer. Listen to Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Jeremiah 23, 29 again. It presents itself as a fire. Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord. Ephesians six seventeen. It's a sword. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then the question is asked, is it not reasonable to suppose that if I have preached the word, that people have been hammered? That people have been smashed to pieces by the word of God? Is it not reasonable to think that if I have preached the word of God, some people have been pierced through by the sword of the Spirit? Is it not reasonable to assume That if I have preached the word of God that some people who were cold and without passion have been set on fire for Jesus Christ. We need preachers today who are not afraid to preach the word of God. And to preach it the way God's word presents itself. But I'm not going to absolve the pews of their part in this either. Okay? Folks... The people in the pews share some blame. See, I fear we become all too casual in our attitudes toward the worship of a holy and almighty God. We need to think about who it is we have come to worship today. You hadn't come to worship the preacher. Don't you dare ever do that. You hadn't come to worship Brother Rick. Did a great job on his special, but... You didn't come to worship him. You didn't come to worship the choir, the Sunday school teacher, this building or anything. You came to worship Almighty God. And if we're not aware of that, you know what will happen? It will become church as usual. I never want to have church as usual around here. Every opportunity for worship should be a new and a unique experience of coming into the presence of God. Sadly, I fear... Much of our worship is according to tradition. What do you mean by that, preacher? We just do the things we saw our parents do and we saw our grandparents do and we think that's the way to worship. And if somebody doesn't fit into that tradition, well, something's wrong with them, right? You know what Jesus said about tradition? In Matthew chapter 15, he asked some of the scribes and Pharisees, why do you transgress the commandment of God By your tradition. If we're not careful, we can allow our tradition to transgress God's commandments. It's possible that we come and we sit and we sing and we suffer many times without truly worshiping God. And so if I was speaking to the church, and I am... I would say get committed to God and get serious about our worship. 
What am I supposed to do? Come in here with an attitude of worship. A desire to worship. Putting everything else out of your mind except God and His glory and His might and His power. Listen folks. We are the salt of the earth. The Lord's churches are the salt of the earth. Jesus said so in Matthew chapter 5 verse 13. In verse 14 He said you are a city set on a hill. You're the light of the world. And in verse 15 He said we are the candle set on the candlestick. But you know what's happening? The salt's losing its saltiness. And you know what Jesus said salt that lost its savor, its saltiness was good for? Nothing but to be walked on, on the footpaths. Cast out and let men walk on it, trod on it. And folks, the Lord's churches are being trampled on by the world today. And many of the Lord's churches are saying, well, it's so bad, we just need to start doing what they're doing and maybe we can get some of them in here. Why would you want... They're walking bad enough on us from the outside. Why do you want to put them on the inside and let them walk on us from the inside as well? The bushel has been placed over the candlestick. The candlestick's not giving any light. And the city that is set on a hill, the light of the world has suffered a power failure. And the world walks in darkness. I'm tired of playing the church game. You know what the church game is? We show up on a Sunday, we do our little church thing, and we go home, and Monday through Saturday, we just do what we want to do. Monday through Saturday, if you're a member of this church, you're a member of this church Monday through Saturday as well as Sunday. And we have a responsibility. And I pray that God will light a fire under His churches. We're living in a dark world. And I pray that God will light a fire under His churches so that we will become the influence for righteousness that I think the Lord's churches once were. But we lost it along the way. That's called revival. It's called renewal. Remember what Paul said at the outset of our message this morning, the text. He said, I've not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Acts 20, verses 20 and 21, he said, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. What he told Timothy, I finished my course, I've kept the faith. You know, there's, there's a reward laid up for me because I've been true to God. I would hate to stand before the judgment seat of Christ as a preacher of the word of God and a pastor of one of the Lord's churches knowing that I had not done my best to preach the word of God. There are some Sundays I go home and I beat myself up because I say, you blew it today, bud. It wasn't as good as it could have been. It wasn't as good as it should have been. And I sure hate to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and hear the Lord say that to me. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. But you know, I believe there's something worse than that. We're not going to, if you're saved, we're not going to have to experience it. And that would be to stand before the great white throne judgment of God and hear Jesus say, depart from me. Ye that work iniquity, because I never, never knew you, never had a personal relationship with you. Now, not one single saved person will be there. 
but lost people, church members that don't know Christ will be there. I'm going to share two more verses and we're going to be done. Because I want, again, to speak to those who don't know Christ as Savior, whether by live stream or here. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God does not want you to die lost. Amen. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. How many people does God want to see go to hell? Zero. Will people die lost and go to hell? Yes, they will. Not because of God. He's done everything He can. You know, He sent Jesus into this world to die on the cross. He's given us His Word. He's given us churches to testify and, and save people to testify of the saving power of Jesus. God's done everything He can. It's up to the individual to either accept Jesus or reject Him. And God doesn't want you to reject Him. Will this be my last sermon? Well, I hope not. And I hope I have preached like a dying man to dying people this morning. And I just hope that and pray that as the message has been preached, that God's people have received it, not just here, but here in their hearts, and that it will make a difference in our lives.